Every great meal starts with great ingredients. Every strong church starts with strong core values. They are the essence of our community, the gospel, gathering, going, generosity, and grace are the main ingredients of ALCF. When these are mixed together, it paints a beautiful picture called the church. In this series, we will unpack each ingredient and explore how it applies to our lives. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking at six verses in Romans chapter 5 this morning for a study around God's Word as uh, we begin and launch out into a new series. And I'll unpack that here just for a, for a few moments. Uh, this time of year, I'm always conflicted. It's always a bit of a tension. Oh, by the way, uh, were any of you blessed last week by John Easterhouse and that wonderful message? So, so good. I had to get on him. I said, you preach like you were candidating or something. This church is not vacant. They have a pastor. But it, uh, it, was, it was really good. I, I looked at it on the app, and my heart was really encouraged. But this time of year, I'm always a little bit conflicted uh, because uh, in a couple of days, uh, I have a birthday. Um, amen. I, did, did you catch that hint? Um, I got a birthday here in a couple of days, February 11th. Uh, but anyways, um, but at the same time, I always schedule my physical for this time of year, um, which leaves me conflicted because I like to celebrate my birthday. And if you really want to catch this hint, if you really want to bless your pastor, um, uh, there's two things, two ways you can bless me with a, a, a red velvet cake, or a German chocolate cake. Now, both of those are going to be in heaven. I, I, I know, I know. Eggplant won't be in heaven. Squash won't be in heaven. But red velvet cake and German chocolate cake will be at the feast of the new covenant. I am just absolutely convinced of that. Uh, if I had to choose, German chocolate is probably uh, slightly my favorite. And of course, whenever you talk about a German chocolate cake, you, you, you've got to talk about its two key, key ingredients, which is a little bit of coconut and some chocolate. If you don't have chocolate, if you don't have coconut, you, you may have a cake, you just don't have a German chocolate cake. These are two foundational ingredients. This morning we begin a series where we are just going to unpack five foundational ingredients that go into not just the life of abundant life, but these five foundational ingredients should make up the part of every single church and for sure the people that go to that church. If, if you don't have these five key ingredients, I don't think you really have a, have a church, and I don't think you are really walking in what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Around here, we call these five core values, these five key ingredients, we're calling them our five Gs. And as you just saw in this little promo video, it is gospel, grace, generosity, gathering, and going. So when we talk about gospel, we're talking about taking people from death to life. When we talk about grace, we're, we're going to be talking about what it means to take people from performing to abiding. When we talk about generosity, we're talking about taking people from consuming to contributing. When we talk about gathering, we're talking about moving people from isolation to community. And when we talk about gathering, we're talking about taking, or rather going, we're talking about taking people from merely hearing 
to actually speaking and proclaiming. So we're going to unpack each of these five G's over the next several weeks. Part of the reason why we're not doing a new members class in January or February, again, we're going to do a, a membership Sunday on March 12th. You won't even have to go to a class because what I'm going to be giving you over the next five weeks is going to go into making our new members curriculum. So what I want you to understand is I'm taking the whole church through a membership class over the next five weeks. So if you're new with us, it's, it's, it's good for you to jump in on the series because you're going to be hearing our core values. Maybe you might miss a Sunday or two during the series. That's okay. Hop online, uh, click on the app, catch up with us that way. But at the end of these five weeks, you will get a real clear view of what life at Abundant Life looks like. And then on Sunday, March 12th, you won't even have to go through a class. You'll have to fill a little bit of paperwork. We want to membership those of you who want to say, I want to lock arms and walk with a church that is committed to these five key things. Now this morning, I want to begin with the first G, and I think it's first for a reason. It is the gospel. So to help us with that, I want us to go to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And I want to unpack the gospel. It is the engine. It is the motor to the church. You take the gospel away from a church, uh, you don't have a church. You may have a fraternity. You may have a sorority. You may have a social club. But any so-called church without the gospel ain't a church. And the tragedy is there are too many churches in our country today uh, that ain't preaching Christ, that ain't preaching the gospel. Uh, so many churches are preaching more community issues or they're preaching more from the New York Times or some bestseller book than they are from the Word of God and Christ and Him crucified. So I want you to understand, first and foremost, Paul would tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the gospel is of first importance. To take the gospel out of the church, the first thing is like trying to sing the alphabet song, leaving the letter A off. Some of y'all trying it right now. It don't work. B, C, D, it just don't work. So we want to begin fundamentally with the gospel. Why? Because what chocolate is to German chocolate cake and what macaroni is to macaroni and cheese is what the gospel is to the church and to followers of Jesus Christ. So I want us to unpack it. So be, pick me up in verse 6 of Romans chapter 5. The guy who wrote this, his name is Paul. Paul says these words, For while, while, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while, while, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, if you can't shout off of that. Since therefore, verse 9, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Last verse, more than that, verse 11, we also, keyword, rejoice. In God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So here's what Paul is fundamentally saying. The gospel has to do with the fact that we are sinners. We are completely unlovable and unworthy of a relationship with God. 
that we have been living life on our own terms. So don't just think of sin as me doing bad stuff. Sin is the notion of independence, that I can do life on my own terms. I can make up the meaning of life. What's that game, Balderdash? What's the game where you make up the definition, the meaning to stuff? That's how so many people approach life. I can define and do life on my own terms. I am a sinner. I'm, I'm wanting life on my own terms. My sins are keeping me from a holy God. But God loves me so much that he sent not one of his three sons like I've got, but his only son, Jesus Christ, who saw us in the midst of our mess, got on a cross and died for us, and now says you can have life and abundant life. That's why we're called Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. You can have life and life more abundantly, and God says that is available to you now in the midst of your mess. So God doesn't wait to save you until you can clean yourself up. If you could have cleaned yourself up by now, baby, you would have done that a long time ago. But the good news of the gospel is that God sees you as is, accepts you as is, loves you as is, saves you as is, yet by his grace never leaves you as is. This is the gospel. God sees you shacking up. God saw the abortion. God, God saw the addiction. God saw the alcoholism. God sees all of that stuff, the greed, the affairs, the whole nine. And he says, that doesn't throw me off. I'm not reneging on my, on my offer. I sent Christ to die for you before you did it, knowing you would do what you did. Now, I don't know how you can turn that down. That is good news. Now, here's what I want you to understand. The gospel is fundamentally not a list of propositional truths to be believed, but a life to be lived into and experienced. In other words, the gospel is not something that just happened to me on the day I got saved. I told you when I got saved, I was four years old, went to vacation Bible school, and, I, and, 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 and God bless these teachers. I'm sure they broke some law. They showed a bunch of four-year-olds a film on hell. I came home at four years old. I said, whatever that is, if there's a way out of that, I want out of it. And right there at the dinner table with my sippy cup, my parents led me to faith in Jesus Christ because I, I didn't want to go there. Now watch it. The gospel didn't just happen to me in 1977 at a dinner table in Dallas, Texas. Now what happens is the gospel is a beautiful story that I continue to live into uh, 39 years later. So it's not just a bunch of propositional truths for me to just believe these things. Okay, I'm a sinner. Okay, God saved me. Okay, Jesus is the only way. That's just the beginning. Now he calls me to live into this incredible story. See, here's the deal. When you think about stories, every single story really has four parts to it. First part is kind of harmony. You, you, you start reading a book or you, or, you, or you go watch a film. Typically, everything's going well in the beginning. That's harmony. Then what happens next is conflict. The antagonist comes on the scene, starts stirring stuff up. Then the third thing that happens, there's typically a momentary setback or failure. 
And then what happens, the protagonist dukes it out with the antagonist. The protagonist wins, and now you have reconciliation, restoration, and, 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 and here we are. We've got a sense of harmony to the deal. This, is, this happens with every story. I can take you back to 1995, a movie called Braveheart. In the beginning, things are going well. William Wallace falls in love with this girl. Then conflict happens as English sto- uh, soldiers end up kind of abusing the girl. They end up killing her. Uh, and, and then William Wallace kind of gets his army. If I'm giving the movie away, it came out 21 years ago. Get over it. And, and, and now here comes William Wallace, and uh, there's conflict there. There's failure. William Wallace actually dies, but his death would galvanize the Scottish... And they would end up winning their freedom, which is resolution. Now, here's what I want you to understand. The gospel is not just something that came on the scenes in the New Testament. The whole Bible is an unfolding of this incredible story called the gospel. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is harmony. It's as good as things get. Adam and Eve are walking in the garden. They're enjoying fellowship with one another, fellowship with their creator. Genesis chapter 3, now the antagonist shows up. Satan starts stirring up stuff, questioning, did God really say? There's now conflict and failure. In fact, the rest of the Bible is failure, 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 failure. And then Matthew chapter 1 begins so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. And now comes our hero, Jesus Christ. And our hero, Jesus Christ, dies on a cross, and now he has an open invitation to all of us in the building saying, you now can come in and be part of this astounding story, the greatest story ever told called the gospel, but the tragedy for billions of people every single day, we settle for lesser stories than the greatest story. And that's some of you here. You have settled for a lesser narrative. Why? Because you want to be the hero of your own story. So you settle for stories of significance, stories of sex, uh, stories of meaning, of value, of purpose, uh, stories of financial success. This is what you want. When God is offering something that that is so far great, it's like, I I know y'all won't get this, um, it's like you're settling for a two-bit part in a failing movie called Leonard Part Six. Only two of us laughing at that, because that was actually a movie that came out in the 1980s starring Bill Cosby that only three of us saw. But here's what I'm trying to say. It's you settling for your own story is like me trying to get a part in Leonard Part 6 when God is offering us a role in an Academy Award-winning blockbuster. It's called the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's where I want us to go. I want us to unpack the Gospel because there's over 6 billion people in our world, and the great tragedy is the overwhelming majority, billions upon billions of people in our world are denying God's gracious invitation to the gospel because they have believed in one of four lies. Some of you are here today. You don't know Jesus Christ. You want to live life on your own terms. You want to be the star of your own reality show. When God is offering you not to be a star in his show, there's one star, his name is Jesus, but God is offering you a role in his story and you will say no to him because you have bought one of four lies. I want to walk through these four lies, and I want to give you four gospel truths that are essential to the gospel story. Lie number one, and it is the primary lie that so many people buy into. In fact, as I share my faith, it is the number one barrier to people saying yes to Jesus Christ. 
Lie number one pretty much says, I am a good person. It's lie number one. People fundamentally believe, I am a good person. And that's some of you sitting here right now. Now, here's the deal. You're sitting here. You don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. You fundamentally say you're a good person. Here's what you're not saying. You're not saying I haven't sinned. You're not saying you don't have issues. You're not saying you don't have baggage. You're not saying you haven't done things, thought things, said things you shouldn't have done, thought or said. But the reason why you can conclude that fundamentally you're a good person is because you're operating from the wrong standard. And your standard are other people. I remember Brother Arshel, when I was uh, uh, doing my undergraduate work in Philly, there was a horrible story that broke out in which at the time there were a group of people who were going to cemeteries at night digging up bodies and having relations with these dead bodies. Now, I don't know if there's a hierarchy to sin, but if there is, it don't get no lower than that. So, so if you're reading that and you don't know Jesus, you're saying, oh, I'm good. I'm good. Cheat on my taxes, sleep with dead people. I'm good. Tell an occasional lie, have relations with dead people. I'm fine. I'm good. Or you look at people like Jerry Sandusky. And if that's your standard, then fundamentally, of course, you're going to say, I'm good. I don't mess with kids. I'm good. I am a good person. Parenthesis. I want to be careful on how I'm giving you these illustrations because Jerry Sandusky and these people sleeping with dead bodies are not beyond the grace of God. So I want to be careful. God's arms are not too short to get anybody. So I want to be very clear on that. But here's the problem. The problem is what Paul lays down for us here is our standard is not other people, it's a holy God. Now, the lie is I'm a good person. Here's gospel truth. Outside of Jesus Christ, I'm a hot mess. Not just a mess, a hot mess. Lie number one, I'm a good person. Gospel truth, I'm a hot mess. How do I get that? Look at verse 6 of our text. Look at what Paul says. For while we were still, here it is, weak. The word for weak, he's writing in Greek. The Greek word for weak means lacking moral capacity. You don't have the ability to meet God's standards on your own. Thinking you can get to God on your own is like trying to get a 500-pound person to dunk a basketball. They don't have the capacity. It's like me saying, I can jump right now and touch the ceiling. I don't have that capacity. If I did, I probably wouldn't be preaching right now. You, you, you with me on that? We don't have the moral capacity. Look at what else he says. These are not flattering terms. Verse 6, he calls us weak. At the right time, going on in verse 6, Christ died for the who? The ungodly. So he calls us weak and ungodly. Verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still, here, here it is, underline it, sinners. He calls us weak. He calls us ungodly. He calls us sinners. This is not very flattering terms. The idea of sinners means to miss the mark. It is a picture of a person who had an arrow in his hand, shoots at his target, and misses and misses and misses and misses. That's who we are. We miss God's mark for our lives of holiness. 
What is the lie? I am a good person. What is gospel truth outside of Jesus Christ? I am weak, I am ungodly, and I am sinful. Why? Because my standard is not my neighbor. My standard is a holy God. For those of us who've got kids, if you've ever been to an amusement park, you know that your kids just can't get on any ride they want. They have to meet a certain height requirement. Now, I love what the amusement park does. If, if the height requirement is five feet, they don't leave it up to you to subjectively go, I feel as if my kid is five feet tall. I feel as if my kid meets the standard. That's not what they do. They have a cutout of a person with a little red line representing the standard, the height you got to be, and your child must stand up to that standard to see if they measure up. Now, why do they do that? Because the amusement park understands that humanity has a natural proclivity to grade ourselves better than what we deserve. God does not leave it up to you and your feelings about whether or not you measure up. He says, here's the cutout. It is a holy God, reality, none of us in this place, from the preacher to the last person in the last seat in the balcony, none of us measures up. Lie number one, I'm a good person, gospel truth. No, outside of Jesus Christ, I'm a hot mess. But here's lie number two. Lie number two follows on the heels of lie number one. When I believe that I'm a good person, lie number two says, I pretty much believe God and I are okay. That's the lie. Most people in our culture believe in some form of a God. Atheists only represent between 2 and 5%. Most people believe in some form of a God. And most people believe at the end of the day when the chips are down that them and God are okay. This is the toughest part of me doing funerals as a pastor. It's my toughest job. I've done funerals for folk I just knew were in hell. I'm sorry, I know it ain't the most PC thing to say, but this person was a hellraiser on earth. The whole nine, uh, they had to barter with the church to even have the funeral at the church. Y'all looking at me like I'm crazy right now. Like you've never been to a funeral where you know, come on now, preacher, you don't put this man in heaven, and I just didn't see it while they were living. You know you have some friends like that. Y'all have some family members. Pookie and them was like that. Come on now, tell the truth. But, 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 but our natural propensity is we want to put everybody in heaven, and it's just not the case. So fundamentally, our, our world has bought into this lie that God and I are okay. When I lived in New York City, let me tell you two stories. When I lived in New York City, uh, we didn't have cars. Once I heard that they were going to charge me about $700 a month just to park the car, I said, uh, we're going to be like Jesus and walk everywhere we go. Uh, praise God for cabs and Ubers. So we, I would get into cabs, I'd get into Ubers, and I'd go back and forth uh, all over town. And, and, and typically, uh, I, would, I would savor these moments because as a pastor, one of the things that drives me nuts, God bless Christians, but I'm around Christians all day long. I just need to be around some good salt-of-the-earth people and have opportunities to share my faith. So I'd sit there, and most of these people driving cabs or Ubers, at least that I were in, happened to be Muslim. And I'd get to talking with them, and I'd, I'd ask them once I found out they were Muslim, what do you think about Jesus? And they would say, well, well we think Jesus was a, was a prophet. We think he was a good man. And they'd say, well, what do you think about Jesus? I said, well, actually, he was more than a prophet. He was actually God in the flesh. 
and, and then, then they'd say something to me like, well, well, that's good. That's your truth. You live into your truth. That's your light. You live into your light. And the punchline they were saying to me was, you be faithful to yourself. You and God are going to be okay. I do things my way. Me and God will be okay. It's kind of this all roads lead to God kind of an ethic. And I would always say to them, well, wait a minute. We're saying two very drastically different things. We both can't be right. Last Sunday, I was stuck at LAX. I wasn't too pleased with President Trump. Uh, and the reason why I was stuck there, because of all these protesters at LAX. I mean, they had just turned that place out. And I get there, finally fight through all the traffic to get there, and someone hacks into Delta's system and shuts that bad boy down worldwide. My flight was supposed to leave at, at 4 in the afternoon. I don't get on the plane until after midnight. So I'm sitting there, and I strike up a conversation with this gentleman who's a Jew. And we get to talking. I said, well, what do you believe about Jesus? He says, well, you know, he's a good man, maybe a prophet, but he was not the Messiah. He says to me, well, what do you think about Jesus? He says, he was God in the flesh. He was the Messiah. And then he says to me, well, well, that's the problem. We Jews and Christians, we, we, we need to learn to tolerate one another. And his words were, you live according to your light, and I live according to my light, and, and it'll all be good. We'll all get to heaven. And I'm going, wait a minute. We're saying two drastically different things about Jesus Christ. We both can't be right. But what is this ethic? It's pervasive in California. It's pervasive in our culture. It's pervasive on college uh, campuses. It is this whole pluralistic ethic that says to thine own self be true. That you and God are fundamentally okay as long as you follow your own inner light, your truth. Now let me say something very disturbing, and it's not me saying it. It's God saying it. Lie number two, you and God are okay. Here's gospel truth. No, outside of Jesus Christ, you and God are actually not okay. You're enemies. Look at what the Bible says. This is not me talking. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were enemies, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul says, outside of Jesus Christ, prior to the cross, we were enemies. Look at Ephesians 2, 3 with me. Among whom, same guy Paul writing, who wrote Romans, he writes Ephesians, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, children of wrath, children of wrath. That is, we were objects of God's wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, you may be sitting here, and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you're going, wait a minute, pastor. You're telling me, that God's my enemy, but I thought God loved the world. How can, how can the, both those things be true? No way both those things, no way God can love me and I be his enemy at the same time. That can't be true. Well, you ain't got kids then. <laughs> Any parent will tell you, I love these jokers, but they tick me off at the same time. I remember uh, my, my, my dad's a preacher, and I, I grew up in a, uh, in a little Baptist church in, in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and um, uh, I, I remember one Sunday, I'm sitting in the back, the very back row with, with my, my best friend, Dante. And, um, and Dante and I are just cutting up while the choir is singing their B selection. 
Anybody ever grew up in a church where the choir would give their A and B selection? The B selection is the last song the choir sings before the preacher gets up to preach. And, and so I'm cutting up with my boy in the back of the church, last row, while my dad's sitting on the pulpit trying to get his mind and spirit right about to preach. And my dad sees me and my boy cutting up, and he's sitting on the pulpit, and he goes just like that to me from the pulpit in front of about four or 500 people. He just starts, you know me, I'm sitting on the last row, I'm going... He must be talking to the wall or somebody. And no, he's like, come here. And um, so I take the long walk down the center aisle and walk up the stairs. There's my dad sitting down. Now, please excuse my father. He loves the Lord. He didn't abuse me. None of that stuff. But what I'm about to tell you, parents, don't ever say this to your kids. I was about 10 years old at the time. Dad whispers in my ear in front of the whole congregation, when I get you home, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) And commence to preaching the birds out the trees. Now watch this. My dad was angry with me, but at the same time, I knew he loved me. In fact, watch it. Psychologists actually tell us that anger oftentimes is an indicator light of what you love or care about. Anger can be expressed inappropriately, that's for sure. But there is such a thing as righteous indignation. Psychologists actually say the most harmful emotion is indifference. Indifference is this idea that I don't care. That's why the worst thing God could ever do to you is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 when he says he turned him over to a reprobate mind. You know what that means when God says, go ahead, go ahead. Do you. That's the worst thing, God. If you can live in sin and nothing happens to you, that's the worst thing God could do to you. Sort of like my kids when they were like two years old and we were crossing some busy intersection and and them wanting to get out of my hand, get out of my grip. You would say I was a mean, abusive parent, not if I strengthened my grip, but if I let them go. That's abuse. So God's anger is actually the underbelly of his love. The fact that he actually cares enough to get angry. God is like, I'm inviting you into the greatest story ever told and you don't have to audition. And you want to turn down my invitation and do life on your own terms? That upsets me. We're enemies. Thirdly, Lie number three, and I've kind of touched on this, so I won't belabor it long. Lie number one, I'm a good person. Gospel truth, no, I'm a hot mess. Lie number two, God and I are okay. No gospel truth outside of Jesus. We're enemies with God. Lie number three, I can get to heaven on my own terms. I can get to heaven on my own terms. Most people in our culture, if you just play out the data, most people believe, they may not call it heaven, but they do believe in a concept of an afterlife. Most people have bought into the philosophical worldview that says the way you get to that afterlife is down a pathway called moralism. Moralism is this idea of do good things. And if at the end of your life, the good outweighs the bad, then you get in. So be nice, be kind, uh, you know, give generously of your finances, donate towards some kind of charity, do good, do good, do good, do good, do good, and you'll get into heaven. Now, this sounds so nice and so wonderful, but it is an affront to the sovereignty of God because moralism turns us into our own functional saviors. 
The Bible says, Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. Not a way, not a way, but the way. Now, there may be multiple ways to San Francisco. I'm still learning my way around here. You might be able to take the 280 or the 101. There might be multiple ways to get to San Francisco, but there's only one way to heaven, and that one way is through Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul would deal with this in our text. I want you to look at what he says in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified, justified, that is declared righteous, that is saved. We have been justified, hear it, underline these three words, not by our works, not by my tithing, not by my church attendance. Hell will have many people who went to church, who sang in choirs, who preached sermons. That stuff doesn't save you. Being in the right environment doesn't save you. You coming to church no more makes you a Christian than me standing in my garage makes me a car. So if you thought coming here today earns you brownie points with God, it doesn't. What justifies us, what gets us in, I love it, verse 9, by his blood. Isaiah 53 says, by his stripes, not my tithing, by his stripes we have been made healed. So there's a incredible story that was told years ago. I don't know if you heard about it, but a group of terrorists barge into a hotel restaurant and they just take out their machine guns and they desecrate the place and they shoot up all these people. They shoot one man particularly who, who is just riddled with bullets and he falls on top of a woman who's alive, who's on the floor because she went to go, go to try to go hide. He falls on top of her and he starts bleeding profusely on top of her. Well, the terrorists now, they finished shooting up the place, and now they're checking just to make sure everybody's dead. And when they come to this woman who is covered by this man, they assume the woman is, is dead because she's covered in blood. But that blood wasn't her blood. It was the blood of the man on top of her. What saved her and gave her life is she was covered by the blood of another person. Likewise, what saves us and gives us life is that on the cross, we were covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what saves us, Paul says. We are saved by his blood. Last thing. Now, some of you walked in here today. Maybe you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. And so many people labor under a cloud of guilt because you are fixated on the rearview mirror of your past. Maybe you were that girl in college that they called for a good time late at night. Maybe you had the abortion or participated in the abortion and the guilt of that plagues you. Maybe, maybe you're the one who's responsible for the demise of your marriage and the devastation that's wreaked on your kids. Maybe it was because of your poor financial stewardship that you had to declare bankruptcy. Whatever the failure is, many of us are plagued, plagued, plagued by guilt. And because of that, some of us have bought into a fourth lie, and that is God will never be pleased with me. God will never accept me. I've got too much mess in my closet, too many skeleton bones in my closet. 
You need to hear gospel truth, and it's found in verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while, while, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The lie is God will never be pleased with me. The gospel truth is we are more sinful than we'd like to believe, yet more loved than we could ever imagine all at the same time. Now, I don't know about you, that is the most powerful part of the gospel story. When God saved you, he did not cover his eyes. He saw everything, everything you have ever done, everything you are doing, everything you will ever do. He is not surprised or put off by your mess. In fact, God's got more mercy than you've got mess. It is an astounding thought. Pile up all the stuff you've done, and it may be this high, but I promise you, God's grace is 10 times as high. You can't work your way out of God's good grace. You didn't earn your way into heaven, and you can't earn your way out of it. God knows all about it. He knew about the affair. He knew about the mess before he even saved you, and yet he still said in his omniscient grace, I still want you. You are more sinful than you would like to believe, yet more loved than you would ever imagine all at the same time. Someone should give God praise in this place today for that amazing truth. Let's go home on this one as the band comes. What should that produce in me? Look at verse 11. The astounding working of the gospel, God calling me into the greatest story ever told, not making me audition as sinful and as jacked up as I am. What should that produce in me? Verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You ought to have joy. If you can't get happy over a God saving someone like you who never deserved it, then you just can't be happy. He says, you ought to rejoice to help us with this. You know, Jesus once was at a party hosted by a Pharisee, a religious leader. And at this party, a prostitute showed up She doesn't say a word. She's just doubled over at his feet, weeping and crying. And I actually think she had encountered Jesus before, and she had experienced the grace of Jesus. She was just coming back to say thank you, but she's overcome with so much joy that she can't even say thank you. Only thing she could do was to cry tears of joy. Now, as she's weeping, the preacher says, now, if you knew who this was who was at your feet, how can you call yourself a rabbi? Jesus says, preacher, let me tell you a story. Two people were in debt. One owed 50, the other 500. Both were forgiven. Now, which one do you think loved more? The preacher said, the one who was forgiven more. Jesus, my paraphrase, he says, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you like me but she loves me. And I think the issue is not whether or not one got forgiven more. The issue is one actually thought they had less to be forgiven of. God deliver us from a spirit of self-righteous legalism that thinks our mess doesn't, doesn't stink. 
all of us, even on our good days, are as filthy rags. And when you understand the depths that God had to go to rescue you and to save you, that'll produce in you perpetual joy. You will perpetually live in this, I just can't believe it, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. It's sort of like I married the girl of my dreams, and I'm here to tell you, to this day, almost 18 years later, I look at her in the middle of the night, and I still feel like I done robbed a bank. I can't believe she said yes. Well, you ought to have that times a thousand with God. I can't believe God would invite me in to this amazing story that he would love me that much.